people listening out there. Thank you again for joining us on another episode of Mosaic Station. We are super excited to be chatting today with Charlie Amaya Scott about environmental justice, settler colonialism, and so much more. Um, If you don't know anything about them, I highly, highly recommend you check out um, what they're about. They're super dope. We'll have all the information on our social media, things like that. Um, But first, we're going to start off by introducing ourselves. My name is Sharon Singh. My pronouns are she and her. And I'm the program coordinator for Mosaic. I'm going to kick it over to Elizabeth, uh, our wonderful, amazing cultural programmer, to introduce themselves. Hi, um, it's good to be back here on another episode. Yes, this is Elizabeth, uh, one of the cultural programmers here. I am currently a student, uh, a senior studying sociology and justice studies. Um, And I'm also super excited to be able to have the opportunity to go ahead and chat with our very special guest, Charlie. I'll go overhead and pass over to them so they could go ahead and introduce themselves. Hi everyone, my name is Charlie Amaya Scott. My English pronouns are they, them, and she, hers. And I'm currently contributing to the colonization of the Cheyenne Arapaho in Ute homelands by attending the University of Denver as a doctoral student. I study higher education. Basically, I study how colleges and universities function, operate, and exist with a particular focus on their connection relationship to settler colonialism and the role of social media in higher education. I also spend way too much time on social media and playing Fortnite with my sister <laughs> and cousins. Yes. <laughs> um, a little something, a little bit more. I, a lot of folks know me as the creator of the Aesthetics, which initially was a blog and has become the name of my Instagram and TikTok, in which I sort of, in summary, and like to inspire joy and justice with the hope that people learn a little more and grow a little bit as well. With around like issues around climate justice, settler colonialism, education, representation, etc. Hey, oh my, thank you so much for sharing. I know it sounds like you're doing a lot professionally as well as in your own personal life. And especially with Fortnite, I can totally relate, like especially during early in quarantine. Like that was something that, you know, I think most of us were doing a lot or we're fortunate enough to be doing. Um, uh, yeah, so to kickstart the first question, I guess. Um, so it'd be to uh, share a little bit about yourself. Um, and I guess I'll go ahead and uh, since I'm speaking, I'll go ahead and uh, start us off. And uh, so me, I grew up in um in Northern California and Oakland area. Um, I would consider my upbringing like a low income. And um, I think that ends up kind of manifesting in like the type of uh, education you grew up in and all that stuff. A lot of um, uh, struggles that come from like that part of my life. But then once you come in higher ed and then there's like a big transition as like a first gen student, there's like a lot of different things, uh, generationally speaking that um, like you're like a lot of just different things pretty much. Um, so I'll go ahead and transfer it over to whoever would like to speak next. 
Yeah, I can share a little bit more about myself like that. So I grew up in a central part of the Navajo Nation in the small town called Chinle, Arizona. I lived with my grandparents, my mother, um, father, and sister and I, we lived with my grandparents until I was like, I think five. And then I moved to another town called Rafak, Arizona, which was apparently, and I just barely found this out because I'm doing a paper on them, but Rafak, Arizona was a location of the first all native school board and native founded mm. school, run school. And so it was interesting being having that part of like history in my mm. life. But the thing is, well, I didn't go there, but my father and mother did work at the school for a bit. Wow. Um, both my parents, my father does not have a bachelor's degree. He mostly has certificates. And my mother got her bachelor's in 2005, I believe. Okay. So I was 10 when she got her bachelor's. And then she got her master's, I believe, in 2008 when I was 13. And so my sort of history with education is very unique in that way because, like, mm. I technically am first gen, but technically I'm not considered first gen. Mm. Um, because according to my undergrad, so I went to Brown University um, in 2013 and 2017. And according to them, I would be considered first gen because only one of my parents has a bachelor's degree and the other one doesn't. But then when you really get into the sort of work of first gen, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be considered, which is strange though, because my mom, like it's, that's, I, I, I totally get the whole like educational experience because it's very strange when it gets to that. Because I'm just like, my experience with education is very unique because like, I don't think many people have that type of, there's very little research on like <clears throat> children growing up with parents who got their degree when their children were like in school. Like there's very little mm -hmm. research done on like adult learners who have children who are like trying to finish like a bachelor's. Um, but I will be the first person in my um, family to have a PhD. So that will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what else to share, but I just like, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> also the same journey I have with education. And I would also say that I grew up low income. It's strange because like when my parents were together, we had dual income housing, then mm. they separated and it was only like a single mother income housing. So, we, so I went from like middle class to then to working class. And now when I'm now that I'm on my own, I'm more of like I'm considered like poor. Mm. <laughs> I'm, in po yeah. I'm in poverty, <laughs> and I'm just like this is so strange. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you shared that because I'm kind of like in a similar boat where when my parents were together, like I think from like birth until like eight years old, I, I guess you could kind of consider them like nearing middle class because you know there's so many different like sub you know how to like place yourself exactly um but then after like you know they separate and it's like okay we're like working class working class and then now while I'm still a student it's like okay still working class so it's kind of like uh like how would you explain the dynamic because I, I can definitely see some certain of like the uh middle class like um I guess things that kids could have like um, if you enroll them like in soccer, little league or stuff like that, that it's more leaning towards 
or I guess extracurricular activities, like uh, stuff like that. I vaguely remember my father trying to influence like when I was like a lot younger and like they could barely afford to uh, try and like introduce those things to me. Um, but then after that um, happened, um, separation after like nine years old, and that wasn't in question anymore. So I was like, okay, like it's, but you get that distinction, I guess you're in a middle place where you're like, okay, like, it's very interesting, of course. So thank you for sharing that. Yes. I think something to add is like, even though I consider myself in poverty, I also have to recognize that I have two degrees. So like, it's it's like this weird dynamic with like capitalism and socioeconomical differences that very few people really talk about or address. So it's, it's a topic. It's maybe something we can talk about another time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think, you know, you've already used the C word capitalism. Um, And, you know, I think that oftentimes we live in a very dualistic world, right? Nothing is black and white. Nothing is simple. Um, And yet, you know, we have all these messages constantly coming at us from so many different angles. And then some of them are internalized, right? And, um, you know, Charlie, specifically, you talk about what that means to your research, right, as an Indigenous person, as a trans person, as a queer person, what it means to navigate this world. Um, If y'all haven't checked out the poetry that Charlie uh, performed for our open mic, you can check that out on our YouTube channel, just, you know, FYI. Um, But I would love to know a little bit about, you know, especially in your blogs, you share about practicing self-love in a colonized world, right? And um, how you're navigating all of that. And I know that Elizabeth and I have had these conversations during, you know, just being in the center. I would love to kind of, um, Charlie, have you share a little bit about what that means for you. um, And then, you know, we can go from there. Self-love. Okay. I think... This is so interesting because like self-love, I think, has become sort of commodified and appropriate in like a way like in a sense of like if you love yourself, everything's going to be okay, And that's not how I view it, because like no matter how much I love myself. At the end of the day, I'm still going to experience violence because of like my marginality, because of these systems of oppression that affect us and continue to really warp our worlds in ways that just is not healthy and it's very toxic and so when I talk about self-love one of the most apparent ways that it really started to show up in my life is that I really started to prioritize myself Mm -hmm. I really started to be kind to myself and and the sort of like moment of prioritization and being kind to myself is like a refusal to really let this world diminish me to something that they can categorize to reduce me to something that is a number and a census Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to really and some I like some of the most overt ways is like you know what I don't I'm not ashamed for taking a nap I will tell people like I like before we started this podcast I told Elizabeth I was like I just woke up from a nap so that's why I'm like a little groggy and I'm not ashamed for taking a nap because like I need rest my body needs rest Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of like when and where. It's like how am I gonna do it? Like, when is it gonna happen? Um, yeah. And then sometimes it's like compliment, complimenting myself in a mirror because who else is gonna do it? <laughs> like really yeah. just affirming my beauty and my brilliance. 
And speaking of brands, it's also really sort of like centering and celebrating the innovations, the entrepreneurship, the brilliance of my community and other marginalized communities, like just really centering and celebrating them. And I know that in particularly in this colonized world, colonizing world, we often see people who are doing this, people who are doing amazing, phenomenal things as competition. Hmm. And what I've been trying to really tell myself to really sort of like shift is like, you know, they're not competition. They're doing amazing work and I want to celebrate them. Hmm. And you can probably see that with the, and that's how I've been sort of approaching my content um, or how I initially started to approach my content is to really just like celebrate everyone because like, I want people to know that like, I adore what they're doing, that they're doing amazing work. And so early on, I would like share different accounts of like what people are doing. These are people that I really like admire and aspire for. And it's so, and I think that's just, that's like, when I think of like self-love, it's like literally starting to sort of prioritize and embody a love that transforms the world into something better. Yeah, I mean, I also noticed, you know, you switch from colonized to colonizing, right? I think language has such an impact. Um, and thank you, because I, I remember I in that moment when you were saying that, I think that is such a, you know, a huge part of how we are constantly colonizing, right? Capitalism tells us, don't, don't take a nap, continue, hustle, right? pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that other shit. But like the reality is like, that is still the continuing process of colonizing, right? When you're told these messages and you have to just go, go, go until like, what do you have to show for at the end of the day? Um, And I think that's, I think that's a mentality that college students sometimes, you know, kind of go through. I'm like, I'm in currently grad school too. And so it's a hustle. Um, and I know Elizabeth, you know, if you want to kind of share, um, cause you, you've talked about this before too. Uh, which part in particular, the self-love peeking back to that, um, point or the, yeah, like around like your mental health and like how, you know, you get these messages of like, you have to continue. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I know. I think I also mentioned it in like my the podcast that I did um, on education and like the early influence mm-hmm. influence of it and how that manifested into my current life and how it kind of served as a pipeline and you know how my education environment is pretty much uh, focused more on preparing me to be in uh, the workforce for like a blue collar job and uh, stuff like that. So I think. Um, if I kind of focus on just uh, the jobs that I did pre-pandemic, and I know I've talked in the center how uh, before getting to Mosaic and I worked in retail and um, even within school, I kind of, it just became sort of blurry. The lines were blurred in the sense that it, at work, I was just more so like, go, go, go. And like, you can't take days off because um, it's going to look bad or you need to make sure that you um have good references for in the future but in reality like all those things you know like we need rest as human beings like it's an essential thing we shouldn't have to necessarily like see that as like the prize like resting shouldn't be seen as like the ultimate prize you know where it's like if I need 
time off and like I shouldn't have to tell your employers you know like okay I need time for xyz like no I need time like I need Mm -hmm. time to rest and I think now I'm in the stage where like I, I can see the result of me not doing that for the longest because it's like you're at a place now where like you completely burnt out but now I'm at a place where I'm like I I'm I'm trying to normalize it by, you know, if I have interactions with people, I like how Charlie mentioned earlier when we first met and they were like, oh yeah, like I just woke up from a nap and I'm like, yes, like, yes, we love all the transparency because that's how it should be, you know? And that's part of, you know, like we're talking about um, colonizing, like trying to actively um, stir away from that however way that we can. So I think, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think that's part of how we show up in different spaces too, right? If we're we're worked and worked and worked in this colonizing world and we don't have time to care and rest, we also don't have the time to reflect on why certain structures exist the way that that they do, right? And um, part of what Elizabeth and I were talking about when we kind of dreamt up this podcast um, was we don't have the capacity to think about our environment. We don't get the capacity to um, think about how our lived experiences and our being and our sense of self, right, our identities inform our lived experiences and how we navigate the world. So I'd love to know, you know, how do you see um, your identities kind of informing how you're navigating this current world oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> so my 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 premise is always that like you know because we live in a world that is very colonizing that colonizes us is that it's very unkind mm-hmm. and it is because of my marginalities my marginalized identities my self in the margins is really informs how I view and experience this world. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like my indigeneity, my queerness and my transness, which are the three ones that I mostly talk about a lot. They're all politicized and debated mm-hmm. in the public with no regard to how I live or want to live. And so in thinking about those three aspects of my identity of who I am, within the English world. There are moments where I really just hated having to be reduced to these type of, to be reduced to just being native, reduced to just being queer, reduced to just being trans. And I hated it because it really limited how people view and interacted with me when we think about implicit biases, when we think about hate crimes, when we think about hate speech. These sort of like hateful ideologies really dehumanized and reduced me to something that became consumable that made me become safe but Mm -hmm. also like safe in a sense of like there are people who can who if I don't show too much of it they're comfortable but if I'm like fully embracing what it means to be queer what it means to be trans what it means to be native it makes everyone uncomfortable and in that discomfort they can really do a lot of harm towards me and so my socialization, my polarization, however you want to describe it, these marginalized experiences really affected how I've sort of navigated because I'm constantly thinking about like negotiating, the way I've framed it is negotiating to survive. 
but also mm-hmm. how exactly am I strategic in my participation with these social systems? Mm-hmm. As someone who is a PhD student, what exactly, how exactly does it really help me change the world the way I want to change it because of my marginality? Which also tells me like how I want that change to really happen because mm-hmm. I dream of a world where it doesn't really... So you get to think of like, you know, trans people are people or like queer people are people or like people are people, that type of thing. And although that's like a little idealistic, my dream is like, you know, like these type of categories, these type of categorizations, these type of systems that really reduce us to a single identity. Like we really need to sort of address them and abolish them so that people can really just be people and celebrated no matter what, instead of having to constantly fight to be humanized, Mm -hmm. to constantly demand that they have demand justice for the violence they experience or having to constantly fight for human rights, basic human rights. And so that's, it's, it's, it's both like, it's like, yes, it's liberating, but it's also frustrating. Mm-hmm. of like how aware I am of like how much violence I experience or no how aware I am of my own precarity just based on these three mm. aspects of who I am and I also think it's very difficult to um you know because I think embedded in all of that is you're consciously aware that a lot of those you know, uh, violence has been internalizing you having to be in a process of healing. And then it's like, okay, but then it's difficult to heal when this is like, you know, colonization, white supremacy, it's everywhere. So it's, you know, we're living it, we're, you know, um, reproducing it ourselves, sometimes without even knowing. So it's like, how do you, you know, when it comes to healing and all that, I think it's it's a question to ponder. <laughs> yeah, and I think to really, I go a little further and I said this I think in an interview with Instagram was that like it's really I'm really starting to really learn to love myself in a world that refuses to and in this moment of goes back to this idea of like self-love in this moment of love I am freeing myself in a way to really know and to be strong with who I am and to be able to change and shift these systems in ways that matter in ways that are influential because like I know who I am and I refuse to let anyone tell me otherwise Mm -hmm. I'm taking a minute to like ponder and reflect and process um yeah I mean I think this might come out as like a bit, you know, uh, disconnected right now, but I, it's it's even the fact that we have to acknowledge that people being able to just live their lives and be celebrated for who they are needs to not be the first step, but like the goal of the process is what's like frustrating for me you know like I want to just be a person like uh like Charlie was saying and there's a part of me there that's like and I have to navigate what it means to be an immigrant I have to navigate what it means to be you know a brown woman in a world that you know often sexualizes me but also things I'm supposed to be quiet in a corner and when I speak up, it's like, 
you don't match our what we think your existence should be right and the work that I think that we do within all of our different kind of um, lenses and uh, you know platforms <laughs> is that <laughs> uh, you know it, it's I think that's where I um, I'm si I'm sitting with that right now yeah. Uh, so the next question surrounds uh, your earliest memory or messages around the environment. What were those messages, whether direct or indirect? I'm not exactly sure if I would describe it as a message, but let me, I'm going to, let me, let me share a story. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it's not necessarily like a story with a lot of details, but basically, so when I was growing up, I would spend several of my weekends in May or June helping my mother, my grandmother, my grandpa, my father, helping my family essentially with planting corn and gathering peaches in my mom's family's garden, which is in the canyon. Um, and so I didn't really like doing this, to be completely honest. I mean, like I was like eight or ten, nine. I was a child. I was a child and I thought this was boring. Um, and very time consuming. But as time went on, I mean, just recently too, I, I went back and was helping my mother gardening. And I realized that my mother would share a lot of stories about her childhood and the different lessons that she was taught, both from like her parents and her grandparents and other family. And so being in my family's garden and listening to my mother's stories, really sort of showed me how interconnected we are with this world. It's like my family's land has been with us for like generations and there's so much life and history that I only know because of my mother and how she shared with it, shared, shared them with me. And that's sort of like how I view the world and the environment. And what I mean by that is that like, so for example, if you're in a forest and if you've ever wondered who else has exactly stood, who else has stood in the exact place that you are standing and saw the exact same thing? You have no idea how each other looks or you have no idea what sense of time or space it's happening, but you know you're not the first and you know that you're not the last person to ever stand in that moment. And that's really what I learned from like my mother when she was telling me these stories. It's because like I knew that she was going down a memory and she was sharing it with me and she would go really into detail about like how like you know like how her and her sisters used to like climb this particular peach tree and i would look at that peach tree and i'm just like wow like i can see her and her sisters climbing it and then i think of like now how like i used to climb it i have photos where i just like i'm climbing that tree and i'm in it and i think that really showed me like how how interconnected how interconnected beings we are both with each other and also with this world because so many landmarks have so many different stories that we may never know but to someone they hold so much significance and i think that's is important and so the message around the environment is that like to someone out there this tree is the greatest gift they've ever have and it's a connection to a memory or to a legacy that they have access to 
Thank you. Uh, first of all, for, for sharing that, you know, memory story with us. Um, and I think, you know, a follow-up to that is, you know, there's so many places in our world that are sacred, right? Um, that do so much, the Amazons, right? Um, bodies of water, and they're disappearing, <laughs> right? And I, I just keep thinking about, there were people there who knew how to work that land. They knew how to take from it, but also give back to it. And now in, a, in this colonizing world, we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to give and take and give back, right? There is no relationship. And so that story that you told about, you know, um, the, the tree, right? Like that tree means something, right? Just the, the same way as like the water means something to people too. And, you know, I'm curious as to at what point do we say enough is enough? And, you know, how, I, I don't know if you have research around this, but, you know, um, you know, at what point do we go, our environment needs something else? Because clearly this is not working. So I would, first I want to say that, like, I would disagree that people, there are people out there who know how to do this type of relationship with the world. Mm -hmm. They exist and they're fighting for their lives to protect this knowledge, to protect their relationships to the land, to protect their relatives, essentially. I mean, we see that with so many indigenous communities. I mean, I think one statistic that is always mentioned offhand is that indigenous peoples represent about like 8% of the world's population, but protect like 80% of the world's biodiversity. And I think what we really need, <laughs> which is interesting because like it's the most simplest thing to do, is like listen to indigenous peoples. Listen to what we are demanding. Listen to what we are asking. Because we know we still have been able, we know, we know how to be in this world. Cause, because our existence is very much antithetical to capitalism, to white supremacy, to colonization. Like the very goals of those three violent systems is to eliminate indigenous peoples in their presence. And so for us to refuse to listen to them, refuse to listen to any of us, is really just like allowing those legacies of violence to continue to really warp our minds and be able to enact those type of violence on each other and onto the world. And so for really change to happen in terms of like addressing climate justice, people need to stop being assholes and listen to indigenous peoples. Like that's literally just the bare, that's like, that will solve everyone's problem. Literally, if people just listen to indigenous peoples, in terms of like protecting our land rights, in terms of protecting, acknowledging treaty rights. It's like, you don't have, like, yes, I, I love that innovation is happening with the way we address different climate issues, but innovation is only happening because there's a climate crisis and people refuse to do the bare minimum and have refused to do it for decades since the industrial revolution. 
And really, to be completely honest, innovation is really just tied to capitalism. So I feel like, you know, as people, as people create these wonderful, life-changing technology, it's going to be sold and auctioned off to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. And so the systems of violence continue, systems of exploitation continue. And we're just trying to solve one issue when really we can solve so many by really just like stop listening to corporations and really start listening to indigenous peoples. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Point blank. <laughs> um, um, you know, is, I think often, you know, we talk about colonized or colonizing world, right? Um, and that concept, but what knowledge would you like to share with students who may not be familiar with the history of settler colonism um, and colonization and, and, you know, what is the difference? Is there a difference? So settler colonialism is a specific type of settler colonialism that really, basically a settler finds a new place, claims it as their own and makes a home while basically removing, displacing, and eliminating any indigenous peoples. And settler colonialism is not just a historical event. I mean, Patrick Wolf has a whole article written in 2006, I believe, in which literally he argues that settler colonialism is a structure and not an event. And so it's an ongoing legacy of violence that continues to this day and continues to affect and influence the lives the policies and practices against indigenous peoples, both within and outside the U.S. empire. Because, and that's also the other thing, is that, like, so I mostly focus on the U.S. empire because that's my experience as, like, a Native person. And so when I talk about settler colonialism, I always try to really center that, like, I'm talking about within the U.S. empire because settler colonialism shows up differently, whether it's in the kingdom of Hawaii, whether it's in the Amazon, whether it's it's in different countries in the continent of Africa, whether it's in the Congo, whether it's in the Caribbean, like settler colonialism shows up and manifests differently. But the idea of it is that it's really meant to create a home for a colonizer who has no stories of creation in that place. And really there's these intentional policies and practices to eliminate indigenous peoples. And how that elimination shows up um, can vary. And I think the U.S. Empire has given us many examples that have inspired different wars and acts of genocide across the world. I don't know, Elizabeth, if you had anything that you wanted to add. No, just everything that Charlie has mentioned up to, up until this point I'm just like wow like yes it's I'm I'm glad we're talking about this and I think I wanted to piggyback on um Charlie's point on how uh capitalism is pretty much we have to consider like the intersection of everything you know and how we need to listen to indigenous communities because um you know I think with indigenous communities like they it's you know, focus on community building. And I think capitalism is the opposite where it's like they're more focused on individuality to the extremes and the extremities of, you know, like um, narcissism and, you know, profit and all of that, where it's like, okay, how we can't really 
maybe I'm being pessimistic, but while we're still running under capitalism, it seems like a tug of war where how are we going to uh, be able to proceed with, you know, um, the environmental issues that we're seeing right now, if uh, we're still under capitalism, that kind of uh, is dependent upon the exploitation of uh, marginalized communities, and that are always are at the forefront of all these problems. So I think it's, we just need to listen to more indigenous communities, as Charlie said, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and I mean, you know, my next question was going to be, how do you see settler colonialism impacting our understanding of environmental justice or climate change? But I think you two pretty much answered that, right? Like. It is, um, it's just running on that hamster wheel and not taking a moment to stop, listen, and just, you know, just, just a little bit uh, so that we can, we can figure it out. You know, we, we were just, uh, there's no, sometimes I think, you know, Elizabeth, you say like maybe you're being pessimistic, but I think like how else can we be in a world where we're not given, we're not taking or given the op opportunity to stop and reflect and listen. Um, and when we, and when we do, I feel like people don't want to hear the truth from Indigenous folks, Indigenous communities saying like, you could stop this right now if you just if you just didn't buy into it, but then it's it's being able to be like, okay, I'm gonna give up some of these things, right? And I don't know if people are ready. Yeah. I I do want to address that. I'm not exactly. I don't really believe it's pessimism. Hmm. I think it really has to do with the fact that these systems of violence really exploit you mm -hmm. and really disempower you. I mean, my thing with education is that it's not the history and current system of education is not meant to empower you. It's really meant to reduce you to something, reduce you to be malleable, reduce you to really accept capitalism and colonization and white supremacy. And so to really, I think change all of that is that you really need to start realizing that like these this world isn't really this world isn't not not exactly this world but these systems aren't trying to empower you and so for you to reclaim your strength you got to refuse you got to learn to say no to a lot of things and you got to learn to really prioritize your health and safety and the health and safety of your communities as well and how that shows up really you start to see that you have the strength, you have the capability to make the world a better place. And I think that's something that I really want people to leave with is that you are capable of changing the world. You just need to reclaim back your strength and your power from systems that have exploited you and your families for generations. I think when we leave today, that's a key factor that I think I'm going to take away from our conversation, at least so far is I think when you just mentioned like, okay, the, this system is doing pretty much what it was intended to do to disempower you. 
I think that is that was a very powerful, at least to me, line that you mentioned that Ash, I think, should be, you know, um, a big takeaway and upon reflection upon that. Yeah. Um, so I guess with that, are there any, you know, uh, other words of wisdom that you would like to share with our SJSU community? This was a popular audio and I really, I really like what it has to say. So something that I said that has, I guess, inspired so many people is that like, if you are black, if you are indigenous, if you are a person of color, your ancestors were scholars, they were engineers, they were scientists, they were artists, they were all these things. So are you and more. You are the prayers that they whispered in the night. You are the manifestations that they asked for. You exist now. And what you do with that is really up to you. And if you want to change the world, do it. If you want to just sleep and rest, do it. You were given a life and you have the capability to choose what you want to do with it. But just know that like you come from a legacy. And I think that's the most beautiful part of being alive today. Wow, thank you so much for that. I, I truly do hope everyone listening can really just digest that and just take moments to reflect because I know certainly I am. <laughs> yeah, thank you again so much, Charlie, for sharing your wisdom and your time and your energy with us. Um, I agree with Elizabeth. I'm going to be reflecting <laughs> on a lot of a lot of what we had uh, talked about today. Um, Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Mosaic Station. Uh, we exist because you listen. And if you ever wanna get involved and be part of any of these conversations, please reach out to us um, through our social media, through our email, just dropping by the center. We're located on the San Jose State University campus in the Student Union. So feel free to stop by, have these conversations with us in person or through our virtual office hours. Um, we're here to support you. We're here to um, support processing and reflecting and whatever else you may need. Um, we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Listen, listen carefully. Thank you.